Here we are in Second uh, Samuel, and this is where this is where you, it, things get familiar, but also things become unfamiliar because you're overfamiliar. Um, and here is where really, I mean, all throughout Second Samuel, had to have some kind of narrative strategy, some kind of method where you can remember how I like a long time ago drawn this board, the diagram of putting the historical and all these different things all together to, the, to produce a theology of what's going on with David. Well, here is where narrative criticism or narrative analysis plays heavily into the scenario. Because if you understand what's going on in the narrative now and the questions that the narrative is trying to make you ask, then once you, then you'll understand, I think, Bathsheba, the whole thing in a new light in a very interesting light by my argument. So let's begin with a word of prayer and get into this. Lord, thank you for this time and um, for what your word teaches us. Help us to see the failures of David, um, not for our own pride's sake, but rather for the sake of honoring your son and the sake of making the Davidic covenant real, both in its positive aspects as well as its disciplinary aspects. And in the midst of David's tremendous failure and in a sense the breaking, the shattering of the Davidic covenant, help us to see the glory of the one who puts it all back together. And that the power of one man who wields this covenant is only fulfilled in Christ, and he is indeed powerful. He is indeed the true king, and may these things, as they prepare us for your son, give us further depth and breath in how we regard him. So Lord, we ask that this time would be like all other times, one of preparation of our minds, but also edification now. We depend on the illumination of your Holy Spirit Guard us from error, O God. Guard us from error. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. In kind of brief review, what we've seen so far after God has talked about... the Davidic covenant is the fact that through one man... Because the Davidic covenant does hinge upon a single individual, through one man, the Davidic covenant has the power, because of God's promises, to lay hold over the entire world, over the entire known world. David, and fulfill all of God's promises. What we see in chapter 8 is the fact that David through the Davidic covenant, by its promises, conquers all of Israel's enemies, fulfills the conquest, fulfills the Abrahamic promises, fulfills even relationships between Jacob and Esau because of the Davidic covenant. One man can do a lot if he holds this covenant. Does that make sense? We've seen that. That's the whole point of chapter 8. Chapter 9, though, presses something down very tightly and very forcefully to us, which is this. What kind of man do you need? 
So this is all in context and overview. We see David doing incredible things to the Davidic covenant, fulfilling all God's promises, so to speak, or at least getting the ball rolling toward that direction. But what kind of guy do you have to be to fulfill the Davidic covenant? That's the question. Because it always hinges on that individual. And this capital K-I-N-G to lower K-I-N-G relationship is critical, to be sure. However, what kind of man do you have to be? And that brings us to where we are in chapter 9. In chapter 9. Some further background of note is that David and Jonathan had made a covenant together. And we see this in 1 Samuel 18, where David promised to take care of Jonathan's descendants. David promised to take care of Jonathan's descendants. That's a crucial piece of background. Will David, like God, toward him honor covenants? Will he be submissive to the capital K-I-N-G? And just as God offers loving kindness to David, this is all in context and overview, will, God, will David imitate God and do the same thing? Is the capital K-I-N-G going to be like the capital K-I-N-G, or is there just going to be some massive disconnect? These are the questions. So in chapter 9, David opens up and says, Is there anyone yet left of the house of Saul? so that I can show with him loving kindness. Loving kindness is going to be a key word in the narratives that are to follow for today's lecture. Loving kindness. Um, and rather than upfront define for you loving kindness, I want the narrative to help define loving kindness for you and to show you what it's like and then to show you what it's not. Okay? So it's going to do what it's like and then it's going to do what it's not. And through this, you'll start to see some things crumble. Loving kindness. So is there anyone that I can show loving kindness for Jonathan's sake? This is the entire capsulation of what we've just talked about in the background. David made a covenant with Jonathan, and now he needs to have covenant faithfulness. Loyalty, grace, is probably the best New Testament idea to chesed in the Old Testament. So, um, there was a servant whose name was Tziba. And here's the strange thing. They, they call this guy to David. And why would that be strange? Who, wh why would you call it? Well, you tell me why that's weird. Here's Tziba, he's a servant. He's just a slave, so to speak. Why? And they call him. What does that mean? Yeah. I would think it's kind of weird why they just didn't call Jonathan's son. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Why not call Jonathan's son? Why not call somebody higher up in the household? <coughs> okay. Um, you know, to put it in modern vernacular, all right, <laughs> in master's college cultural vernacular, okay, battle of the dorms, bring up the leader of Hotchkiss, who are you going to bring out? Siona, are you going to bring up the little freshman, 
Like, oh, look at the great leader of Hotchkiss, the freshman. No, don't be silly. It's Ona, right? You bring up the RD, right? Okay, if somebody, if Master's College versus another college, bring up the mighty leader of Master's College, you bring up John MacArthur, right? Oh, who can face John MacArthur, right, in the Bible, you know? Well, let's play Bible trivia now, you know? The <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't, you don't bring up, um, and no offense to plan operations at all, you just don't bring up a plan ops guy. I love plan operations, but they're not the, they're not the figurehead of the school. Does this make sense to everybody? Here, you bring up Seba. And that's weird, because Seba's important, no doubt about it. But he's not the leader, unless he is the leader. Do you start to see a problem here? This, the house of Saul has become totally destabilized to the point where a slave is now the, the master. And this at first, to us, might not seem like a big deal, but it will be. It will be. It'll come back to haunt us. Um, right now, remember, the good parts of David's reign are still intact, but it doesn't mean he's doing bad. It, it doesn't mean that he hasn't done anything bad. Everyone remember that? For example, did he hamstring 100% of the horses? No, that's going to come back and haunt him. Does, did, has he been multiplying women? Yes. Even though this is all good parts, even though nothing has gone catastrophically wrong, things are being set up. Even bad mistakes now. So that when there's a certain event that occurs and everything comes apart, everything he did in the past comes back to haunt him. Does that make sense to everybody? This will be one of them. Yeah. Yeah, it could be. But the thing would be, David might have been ignorant up to this point, right? But his information intel network should have figured it out. Does that make sense? And at this point, you know, maybe Ziba is the real guy that's in charge. Good. Bring him here. But watch what David does with this guy and things will start to make sense. Okay? So, Ziba appears, and notice in verse 2 there is a contrast. Ziba is, the word servant is used twice in reference to Ziba, and how is it used? What's the first time in verse 2? <clears throat> Ziba is a? Yeah, servant of the house of Saul. What's the next usage? Your servant. Who's the your? David. There's a massive contrast here. Ziba technically is a slave of Saul, but he says he's a slave of David, which is true because Ziba is really nothing in both accounts. He is a slave in the house of Saul, emphasizing his low position, but truly in the end, he recognizes his allegiance is not to Saul, but to who? David. He doesn't deserve anything. That's important. He doesn't deserve anything. And he knows that. <clears throat> the king says, asks the same question again. There are two wording changes that happen in this question. They might not be so significant. Partly because, even though they could have some political motivations behind them, behind the changes. But 
the, there's omissions of like for the sake of my servant or my for the sake of Jonathan as well as the change in the word remaining but one might be grammatical and the other one might be covered by something later anyways nonetheless David asks the same question in essence again and what word is repeated <coughs> chesed the kindness here everyone see the word kindness again David's talking about kindness. And what we learn here from this <clears throat> is that David doesn't just want to keep kindness because he's faithful. He's persistent. He's persistent. He asks it again. It shows his sincerity. He really wants to get this done. Persistent. He doesn't just say it once. He says it twice. And he even talks to a servant to figure it out. So in other words, it is sacrificial. Or we could say self-condescending. Right? Because Ziba is just a slave. So here's a king talking to a slave to determine information. This is unheard of. <clears throat> so he wants to show the loving kindness of God. And Ziba says to the king, what? There's still a son, especially to Jonathan, but he's what? Both feet. Raglaim in Hebrew, and this is a, if you're in Hebrew and you're like, what's the, you know, we teach you in Hebrew single, plural, and then what's the other one? Dual. And you're like, who cares about the dual? Two eyes, two. No, but here, dual is important. Raglaim, because it emphasizes he's lame in what? Both feet. What happens if you're lame in one foot? You can still what? Walk. Lame in both feet means what? You're unable to walk. Do you see the significance? <clears throat> Previously, in chapter 4, we understand why this occurred. And even more importantly, in chapter 4, we understand that this was Mephibosheth's disqualification from leadership because he was ruled and viewed as incompetent, worthless. So what, does, what would everyone do to Mephibosheth? Throw him out. Even his own house threw him out. Does that make sense? And so Tziba, why is Tziba in charge? Because Mephibosheth is worthless. See that? Mephibosheth is worthless. Socially worthless. In our culture nowadays, we are highly, and praise the Lord, sensitive to those with handicaps. Not in that day. Not in that day. I mean, God, God wants them to be he actually makes a series of laws that protect people who are handicapped. And, you know, in Leviticus 19, don't cause this blind man to stumble because everyone thought that was funny. It's like, oh, hey, you can't see. I'll just trip you. You won't even know who did it because you can't even see. Yeah, it, it, that stuff wasn't considered necessarily shameful. But, well, that's a little over-exaggeration. But the, but the point is, God tries to protect it, but people have a natural proclivity toward discrimination against the handicapped. Here, Mephibosheth is shameful. In fact, his name, Mephibosheth, means man of shame. Yeah. What does Seba mean? Seba? Well, <clears throat> that could mean host. Could mean host, harvester. Uh, you take your pick. Yeah. But, um, you know, it could be Aramaic. But that would still mean the host. But anyway, uh, the, he, here is this man of shame. He doesn't deserve anything. Tziba doesn't deserve anything. 
because already he's a slave, and he's not only that, he's, he's the slave of David. He, he's in the loser house, basically. And now here's Mephibosheth, who in a sense is worse than a slave, and looked down upon because of his handicap. He doesn't deserve anything. And here is where he's living. You know, and David says what? Where is he? This is another aspect of David's loving kindness. David, note, and I can't stress this enough, he's personally involved in this, right? He is talking to the slave. It's not that he sent somebody else to talk to the slave. He's talking to the slave, and he's searching out for Tziba, or excuse me, for Mephibosheth, through Tziba. He's taking the initiative. This is the nature of chesed. Chesed is not just hands off, do whatever you can, I'm just a nice guy. I think that's what we think of grace all the time, is that God is just nice. Grace means that God is an active pursuit, and when there's an obstacle, he overcomes it and says it again. And when people say, well, where is he? Or like, well, he's, uh, he's not here. Well, where is he? I'm going to find him. And it means that there is determination behind it. And Siba says, well, he's, he's staying at Machir, the son of Amiel, in Lodavar. Lodavar is <coughs> along the Jordan River, and Machir is a very wealthy guy. So he's standing, staying at a rich man's house in self-imposed exile. Why? Because Mephibosheth knows he's what? I'm out. I'm a loser. I've got no hope. So I just got to depend on the kindness of this rich man who knew my father to protect me. Does that make sense? He's out. His own family has rejected him. You know, he's far away from the CBP, Central Benjamin Plateau. He's gone. He's out. So he is worthless beyond worthless. Poor Mephibosheth. So this is what David does. 9-5. David sent. Highlight sent. You say, why is sent important? I'll tell you later. Okay. But here, uh, no, I'm not going to tell you that either. So, and he brings him from the house of Machir to Jerusalem. This is David's, once again, initiative. He's going to get the job done. <laughs> Mephibosheth comes to David and falls on his face and prostrates himself to him. What does this sound like? What? Chapter one, Chapter one with who? Uh, the Amalekite. And you're like, huh. This could be another... What was the Amalekite? It was a... What was it? It was a test. This is another test. With the Amalekite, what was the test? You see, uh, by the way, falling and prostrating yourself in the book of 2 Samuel will be highly associated with a variety of tests. It's going to be fascinating when we get into it. Uh, But this is the second occurrence, and it's good. The first test with the Amalekite was... Are you going to violate the capital K-I-N-G's timing and become king what? Prematurely. This test is different. David is the what? King. But the question is, are you going to violate the capital K-I-N-G's ability to show loving kindness and do it your own way as king? Do you see the difference between the two? One is, will you take the throne prematurely? The other one is, okay, now you have the throne. Are you going to abuse it? Does that make sense to everybody? Are you going to do it? 
So here's Mephibosheth, and as he's prostrate on the ground, he's already a cripple. No one loves him. Who cares about this loser? What could David just easily do? He can't defend himself, take the sword, and kill the man. Why waste your resources on such a bum like this? See, for us, you know, you know, in Sunday school, I remember talking about Mephibosheth. It was funny because, you know, Asians really can't pronounce Mephibosheth anyway. But the thing is, uh, you know, you just, you just, look, you know, there's this flannel graph guy and he's on crutches, which is ridiculous. Why? He's lame in both ways. You're just like, why would you, he can't, you know, like that would be the image of a guy on crutches. He can't be like that. He's dragging himself in on his hands. Does that make sense? Because you don't exactly have wheelchairs at that time, right? A wheelbarrow might cut him in, or people are carrying him in. He ain't, I mean, unless he's Robo-Man or something, he's, he doesn't got crutches, okay? So, uh, he's flat on his face, and we, and, you know, Sunday school teach, I remember this, because I was like a Sunday school teacher in training, and, I, and this was the lesson that the head teacher was teaching, and just like how cute Mephibosheth was, and oh, we should have pity on people like this. The problem is, the Bible emphasizes all the time that he shouldn't have gotten any pity. Does that make sense? Because that's the reality. Because there's a contrast that we need to see. He doesn't deserve anything. And David says to him, Mephibosheth, you would never... Okay, And let me, let me try to phrase this right. David's language is derogatory. Why? Because he addresses... Huh? Not exactly. Because he says Mephibosheth's name. He says Mephibosheth's name. When you don't know somebody, you might address them what? Sir. If they are a former king's son, even grandson, you might say, my lord, or honored one. You don't just say what? Mephibosheth. When we address the former President Bush, we don't just say, hey, look, there's George. Even if he's not president anymore, does that mean? You don't just say, well, there's Clinton, former President Bill Clinton, or even Bill Clinton. You don't just say, Bill. Well, Bill was out the other day, and just campaigning for the Democrats. Go Bill. You know, you don't say that. You have, a, you have some kind of preface or full-length name, some kind of official title. Even the news stories will say, former President Bill Clinton was out doing this and this and this and this and this. Why? Because there's a way to address royalty. There's a way to address leadership. You don't just say the first name in English. And here, you don't just address somebody by their name unless you know that's exactly what they are. They're nothing. No one cares about him. And David says that, and Mephibosheth knows his position. And he says what? <coughs> I'm your servant. And uh, once again, that emphasizes, you own me, David. And Mephibosheth is terrified because he knows what should happen to him. And David says to him, what? What's the first thing out of his mouth? Fear. Don't fear. Mephibosheth should die. He's in a helpless position. And David says, 
I will surely show kindness to you. That's the nature of grace. It means it searches you out. It means when there's obstacles, it overcomes. It means it takes initiative. It means it does it over and over and over again. And it means that it shows it to you regardless of how worthless you are. That's chesed. And that marks a true king. Because that's what marked the K-I-N-G capitalized. So David here is excellent. He's involved. He's hands-on. He's taking the initiative. And David, chesed means to take all the power and authority you have and to manipulate whatever is in front of you so that the person that you're showing chesed to will benefit. And notice what David does. You are in exile. I'm going to bring you back. You lost all your land. I'm going to give it all back to you. Think about this for a second. What does that mean? And we will see what it means in a little bit, but you got to think about this. If, if I say to you, okay, you lost your house. Somebody else now is living in it, but I'm going to give it back to you. What does that mean? Somebody else has to lose their house, doesn't it? Does that make sense to everybody? This is no small thing. This is not just like, well, the land's unpopulated, so just, I'll, just, I'll just give it back to you. What's the problem? Uh-uh. This means David has to reorganize part of a whole country for the sake of this guy. Does that make sense? And not only that, Mephibosheth, who is a disgrace, he's lame. Does that make sense? He's going to sit at whose table every day, all the time? David's table. Do you know how much shame that would bring a king? Think your diplomat, right? You don't want to see, when you go to another nation, them appear to be what? Weak. But this has weak written all over it. But David doesn't care. He's practicing what? Chesed. Loving kindness. That's the nature of grace. You personally take the initiative to overcome all obstacles and do everything within your authority to change the circumstances such that the person you have grace upon now is tremendously benefited. And Mephibosheth has the most excellent, excellent response, which highlights how gracious, how kind David is. What is your servant that you would regard a dead dog like me? I'm just a dead dog. You know what Israelites did with dead dogs? The same thing they would do with alive dogs. Nothing. You ignore those things. They're disgraceful. Dog used to be a reference to Gentile eventually. And so in Philippians 3, you know, beware of the dogs. Uh, that's actually a reference to, you know, Paul is using the reference of Gentiles against the Judaizers. It's just absolutely disgraceful. Um, so here, Mephibosheth says, I don't deserve this. David says, of course you don't. It's on the account of my promise to your father, Jonathan. Uh, so often, by the way, because this really helps us to understand, with a bunch of different passages, the usage of chesed, of grace, chorus in Greek, <coughs> of um, the nature of grace. So often I think we think it's just being nice. Like, God is kind to us. And because God is kind to us, 
That's why we're saved. It's not by what we do, but it's because God is nice. But that is not the idea of grace in Old Testament or New Testament. The idea of grace is proactive omnipotence for another person's benefit. It's interventionist. Okay? And that's what we see right here. Mephibosheth has the best reaction to this ever. You probably need to remember that too. But like I said, the king's grace transforms the entire nation, or at least a section of the nation. And who's this going to affect? Just take a guess. Who's it going to affect? Who's right now operating the land as if it's his own? Ziba. And this is good and this is bad. On one hand, this demonstrates, to be sure, that David's loving kindness, the effect of his loving kindness was genuine, powerful, effective. He shifts Tziba's entire position from kind of being pseudo head of the house to now being what? What he really was, which is what? Slave. You're back to being a slave. You and everything that you thought you owned, that belonged actually to Saul, I'm giving it to your master's grandson. And you and your sons and your servants shall all cultivate the land for him. And you will provide him food. He's the master, you're the slaves, not the other way around. Do you understand what kind of slap in the face, on the other hand, this would be? You had it all. This was your land. This was your house. You were the one who was exalted. You were the one who was regarded as leader. And then all of a sudden, it's taken away from you. You will not be happy. And this decision that David makes, which is a good decision, I would argue, because it shows his loving kindness, still will have consequences on him later. Okay, Tseba will show up later, approximately seven chapters from now. And there, things will start to make sense because of what happened here. Okay, so once again, a lot of things you just got to memorize for later. Tseba submits to this because uh, he has a large household he can provide and he submits. According to all that my lord the king commands, so it will be. And Mephibosheth, he eats at the table <coughs> just like just like Tseba, or just like David promised. Okay. Now, verses 12 and 13. Um, underscore two things, or three things, really. One, David's loving kindness, first of all, does extend beyond just Mephibosheth. It extends to generations, because Mephibosheth in verse 12 has a what? Has a son named Micah. And, God, and David extends loving kindness to him, just exactly the way that he was supposed to, because he was supposed to be faithful to Jonathan's descendants. But it also underscores this. Things have totally turned around for Tziba. Look at the end of verse 12. And everything and all the dwelling of the house of Tziba and his servants now belong to who? Mephibosheth. They were all servants of him. This is not going to be fun. But David, that's part of loving kindness, is to turn the tables. is to turn everything around. That's the power of loving kindness. But 
That might not always end up so nice for David. Does that make sense to everybody? It's a good thing here. But there's darkness looming. And the conclusion, number three, verse 13, is just the tremendous intervention that took place. He lived in Jerusalem where he shouldn't have lived. He should have been in exile far, far away. He ate at the king's table continually, regularly. Uh, Either way, the idea is repeatedly all the time. And he should have been in shame. And then he should have been totally discarded because he was lame. This time it emphasizes in both feet. It doesn't just put it in the duel. It even adds the number two by it just to show you that Mephibosheth should not have been regarded at all. But that's the nature of grace. That's the nature of David, because that's the nature of God. David intervenes. Yeah? Is there any significance in him being treated as one of the sons of the king? Yeah, because it's the complete reversal of who he should have been. He wasn't even regarded as a son of Saul anymore, at least a legitimate one. And then now he's elevated to the point of he is a son. It's a complete reversal of everything. Yeah. Everyone understand the, what David did here? Personally involved, all these kinds of things, the nature of his loving kindness. Does this make sense to everybody? Okay, good. Next page. Here's context and overview. The first phrase, now it happened afterwards. The first phrase, now it happened afterwards, makes a turn in the narrative. The first, now it happened afterwards, happens, or not the first one, but the first in this section, following chapter 7, happens in chapter 8. Showing the positive effects of the Davidic covenant. Showing the positive effects of the Davidic covenant. We've already seen them. David the right man with the Davidic covenant conquers all these things, fulfills all these promises, and indeed, he has to be the right man for the job. But if he is, it's all positive. Well, what do you think is going to happen in the next? And then it came about afterwards. You have a what? Negative example. Negative example. This begins in chapter 10 officially, the negative example. And things go bad immediately. This is looking forward, I suppose you could say, to the rest of the narrative. This is looking forward. But there is also a look back. Chapter 10 will be held in antithesis as a foil. You guys remember what foil is? Contrast, contrasting things with chapter 9. So there's something looking forward. It's going to get bad from here. But that's because this is going to be in contrast to everything that has happened in chapter 9. Okay. Um, And what all of this will say is that David cannot be the one. David cannot be the one. Um, Yeah. And if you follow my logic, I think you might see something you probably didn't think about before. But we're not there yet. We are first in the failed situation of international policy. Amnon, or Ammon, anyone remember Ammon? Who's Ammon's brother? 
We talked about him last class. Moab, which means who's your daddy? Yeah, who's my father? Okay, and Ammon is from uh, Ami, which means who are my people? You get the picture, right, from the thing? Because, well, my people are my family, including my cousin brother and my you know, who's also you know, related to my aunt, mother, and stepmother, you know, and my dad is my grandfather, and my uncle, and my father. You know, it's like, wow, who are my people? Yeah, that would be the question. Literally, his name is translated son of my own people. You understand now, even better, what's going on. Ben Ami. But Ammon is family is family. And David had a relationship with his father, <coughs> Nachash, which means, well, it could mean snake, but Chanun, any, any Hebrew students know what Chanun means? It means kindness, not chesed, but kindness, like being nice to somebody. And that's going to be quite ironic because Chanun is not nice. Okay, there's going to be a play here on words. But what the question is, is that dad has died, David had a treaty with dad, and what's the question going to be? Will you keep the treaty with the son, or will you force a new treaty to be formed? That's the question. And David decides, I will show what? Chesed. What's the most important word there? Chesed. Because it makes him sound like who? Like what? What happened before? Does that make sense to everybody? Okay, great. So David, right now, it looks like he's the right person for the job. He looks like he's the best guy. All right, that's good. That's really good. I'm going to show kindness to Hanun, the son of Nahash, just like his father showed kindness to me. That's, we're just... I'm just going to continue down what makes a good king a good king, loving kindness. So David what? Sent. Is this good or bad? Fifty-fifty, right? Is it good or bad? It was good last chapter, yeah. So let's just write good next to it. Maybe it's good. I mean, David sent once before, so why not send again? Yes? So he sent some of his servants to console concerning his father. But when the servants... So this is all supposed to be going according to protocol. That's, what's, that's the nature. And yeah, it doesn't seem so bad here. But when David's servants came to the land, what happens? The Ammonites counsel... Hanun saying what? What's the point behind all of this? What's the point behind all of this? Yeah, don't, don't do this. Don't make a treaty with this guy. Don't treat him nicely. This is all, they're all a bunch of what? What? Read the text. 
spies. They're a bunch of spies. Now the question is, was this intentional or was this unintentional? Was this out of ignorance or was this willful? Some people suggest that it's willful because what's the state of this entire region? <coughs> it's under whose reign? David. In chapter 8, remember, that's what the whole point of the chapter was. David holds down. And so now everyone needs an excuse to what? Unite and fight. And this could be a good excuse to do that. It's possible. We're not entirely sure. But no matter what, their reaction of what they do, of shaving off the beards and exposing the Israelites' nakedness, it should be held in contrast to whose reaction? In the previous chapter. Mephibosheth, right? Mephibosheth says what? I am like a dead dog. I don't deserve any of this. And they treat David's loving kindness spitefully. They treat David's loving kindness spitefully. And sends them away. David hears it. David hears it. And then what does he do? What does he do? What does he do? He sent to meet them. Now again, we hit the word what? Send. Is this one good or bad? Good. It's good. Why is it good? Shows David's consideration for them. Okay. Funny that you would say that. <laughs> what did we point out in the last chapter? Why? What was loving kindness? You, yeah. Are we contrasting personal pursuit against like sending someone else to represent you? Well, you tell me. What was the difference between David and Mephibosheth and David now? Before he sends what? One time to bring a person who's lame to him. Yes? And then from then on, it's David personally involved. You with me? Now what is it? David still shows consideration, but is it the same kind of loving kindness that you have in the previous chapter? No. Sending. We'll do it all by proxy. We'll do it all by messenger. And you say, but, but they're shameful. Well, who also was shameful? Mephibosheth. And that didn't stop David. And you say, but no one will want to look at them. Well, David, what did he do with Mephibosheth? He brought him into his own table. That's not stopped David before. All of a sudden, you start to have a perversion with scent. The original sending was fine, right? Now, you can't be as dogmatic about the sending because it's starting not to match with what the original intent of chesed was supposed to be. Does this make sense to everybody? We've got problems. Yeah, and chesed doesn't mean you do things by proxy. 
Hesed means you do it yourself. Otherwise, it's not you intervening. It's somebody else intervening. <coughs> Look, here, this is just an easy, practical, duh example. What's more valuable? A MacArthur Study Bible signed by John MacArthur or a MacArthur Study Bible signed with his digital signature that's printed by the publishing house? Uh, the one directly signed by him? Why? Because it's an investment of his person. Does this make sense? Not by proxy. Or both his signature? Yes. But one less so than the other. And so this sending is a problem, and it will come to haunt us more and more and more, because this sending is becoming less and less about loving kindness and more and more about just personal convenience. Does that make sense? And um, here, let me just show you where this could go. Go to, go to, go to chapter um, 11 and just read verse 1. Well, actually, no, 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 no. Go to chapter 11 and read verses 3 and 4. Out loud, someone. David sent and inquired about Oh, what word did we just have there? Sent. Huh. What's going on? Continue. So, uh, what? Again. And this time he sends, and what happens? He takes her and he sleeps with her. That's where it goes. The sending will get worse and worse and worse. What does it originally look like? It's what? Loving kindness. And it's, it's David's intervention to do good. And then all of a sudden it starts to become what? David's intervention to do what? Wickedness good, too bad. And it all starts to de-evolve here. And it gets much, much worse. Because I haven't showed you how it's de-evolved. You just think, oh, that's really bad. Good sin, bad sin. It's much worse than that. Much worse than that. David's going to get into a bad habit of doing things by proxy. But we'll talk to you. Well, there's something you need to ask. But we'll get there when we get there. So David sends, and the men were so humiliated. It just emphasizes the, the nature of how these men contrasting, or the Ammonites contrasting Mephibosheth, have rejected the loving kindness of David. And so David says to them, by proxy, <coughs> stay at Jericho. And why would they stay at Jericho? Just to test your geographical knowledge, why this makes all sense. Because Jericho is on the way in from the eastern side. Does this make sense to everybody? It's just a natural point where you'd enter. That's why Jericho is the first city that Israel attacks, right? Because they're going in from the east. Now, the Ammonites have become odious, absolutely shameful before David. And so they hire who? Yeah? Why, why is it shameful that they cut off the Yeah. Because it's going to force them to cut off the other half. Yeah, yeah. And Israelites were not supposed to cut off their beards. 
So it's basically, I'm going to force you to do what you don't want. Uh, it's very maniacal. Okay. And to, to humiliate them, to shame them by showing their nakedness, as well as to make them do things that they would never want to do, you are, you are really humiliating them. Okay. So he commands them to grow their beards out and comes and they come back and Ammon hires who? Who do they hire? The Assy- not the Assyrians, the Assyrians, yes. Ammon is like right around here. Aram is right around here. Why did they hire the Syrians to do a what? To do a sandwich, right? They're going to do a sandwich maneuver against Israel. (coughs) And by the way, notice, this is their one opportunity to hire the Arameans, the Zobites, and the people from Tov. All three of those locations were mentioned in chapter 8. Do you remember this? And I even said, Tov, Zobah, and Aram are the gateway to what? Gateway to what? Do you remember? Gateway to what? Starts with an M. Mesopotamia. It's the gateway to Mesopotamia. What they're trying to do is to get free. Free of David's reign. So now you have a national rebellion on your hands uh, because David's you know, critical parts of David's territory are now trying to flank him and David is trying to do... And it's a crisis situation. There are 33,000 people in the force. And uh, what does David do? Next page. He what? He what? He sends. Now, let's talk about this one. Is this one a good send or a bad send? Bad. Why? That's right. Fought himself. And you're like, oh, but he won't do that. Oh, no, don't say that so fast. We'll see. David sends Joab and all his army, the mighty men. Okay? Everyone is in this battle. The entire cohort, by the way, just sneak peek of future coming attractions. Who's one of the mighty men? His name is Uzziah. David sends them all out. And David, his job, the reason Israel wanted him was that he would fight God's battles. Everyone remember this? He would be the king that went out and have victory over them. In fact, sent now has become used so much you probably have ignored it. But go through the text, starting with verse 2, and find every single sent, whether it's David or somebody else. Do you see a sent in verse 2? David sent some servants, yes? What about verse 3? Has David not, what? Sent. Verse 4? Yeah. Verse 5? Yep. Verse 6? Sent and hired the Arameans. Yes? Every verse has the word sent in it. You just probably didn't always pay attention to that. (laughs) Every verse has the word sent. It's all sent, sent, sent. It's just trying to confuse you. Who's sending who, and what's sending where, and who are sending what? The Peking kings are what? 
sending. And David now has become just like a pagan king. Just like a pagan king. If you don't practice the loving kindness of the capital K-I-N-G and imitate him, who will you become? Just like all the other nations. David is a pagan king now and he's sending. And the question that you have to ask yourself is what? What, what question are you going to ask yourself here? Why? Why would David just do this? Does that make sense? Why would David send? Why would David send? And it gets worse. The why question should be even bigger in your head because, okay, David sends Joab, yes? Commander of the army, all the mighty men, they're all going out. But the Ammonites and the Arameans, <coughs> people from Aram, they're at the city of Rabbah. They're at the city of Rabbah. <coughs> and they set up an ambush. They get there first. So they get the position. And here's the city. Symbolized by this box. Here's the field out here. The Ammonites position themselves at the gate of the cities. Does that make sense? And where do they position the Syrians or the Arameans? Where do they position the Arameans? In the field. So now what's going on? Now you totally have what? sandwich because and it's even worse because it's not just a big picture sandwich it's a battle sandwich where the Israelites are what in the middle you know what happens in a crossfire the man in the middle what dies who should have been there to stop this from happening David but he wasn't so they walked into a trap so who has to take control? Who should have taken control in this crisis situation? David, David but who takes control? Oh, huh, wait a minute, but Joab starts to do things. Look at what Joab says. Joab starts to give the battle strategy. Who before gave the battle strategy? David. And who told David what to do? God. Everything now is breaking apart. Do you see that? Everything now is just shattering. David, why did you send? Look at this catastrophe that's happening. So, so Joab says to his brother, and, and here's the risk, right? Now, this is all kind of scrunched up, but Joab basically splits the men into one elite force with one major force. Does this make sense to everybody? And he says, you guys are going to fight this way, and we're going to run this way. Well, what's the total risk? If one line collapses, then what happens? Your, what? Back is facing their front. Do you understand this? And that's why you have shields. They only work when you're facing the right direction. And it's just going to be suicide. Does that make sense to everybody? You're going to split the line. One line runs toward the back. One line presses toward the front. <coughs> that plan is not going to work, humanly speaking. Uh huh. He could have. But what we will see is the Bible seems to indicate that if David had done it, there wouldn't have been a problem. Okay, We'll see it. Like right now, be skeptical of me because the Bible wants you to be skeptical right now of what I'm saying 
because there will be something in a little bit that you're like, oh, okay, yeah, uh-huh. Yeah, but it's not just us making this up theologically. There's something in the text that will just be like, yeah, okay, yeah, bad. Why? You know, why did you send these guys? So he's going to split them. And if one line ha- falls, you're going to pull back the other line, which is dumb. Why? Because you're going to risk the other line getting demolished, and then everyone else's back is going to be running towards you. Do you see how this is a lose-lose? This is totally suicidal. And Joab knows that, but here's what Joab says. Verse 12. What does he say? Read the whole verse out loud. Be strong, and let us show ourselves courageous for the sake of our people and for the cities of our God, and may the Lord do what is good in his sight. Who should have said that? David. What's Joab, the military commander, giving the spiritual insight and authority to the nation and its army? Where is the king. That's what you should be asking. What? Joab shouldn't even be saying this kind of stuff. He shouldn't even have to. It should be David. What's going on? Why did you send them? So Joab and all the people attacked the Arameans. They fled. The Ammonites, they go into the city and the army is saved. That's God's providence. And Joab returns back Joab returns back to what? Jerusalem. Now notice here, did Israel have victory? Was it a tremendous, great, spectacular victory? No way. They just made it out, what? Alive, and the other bad guys just ran. So I was like, okay. It was a victory, but it was sure a close one. Does that make sense, everybody? That's the depiction that you have here. That's the depiction you have here. Okay. Well, now we have a problem. Because this victory wasn't complete, because they allowed the Arameans and the Ammonites to flee, the, they, the Arameans particularly are worried, right? Ammon, uh, they're kind of contained. But Aram, they're now in jeopardy. Why? Because you joined the, you joined the fight, right? Ammon summoned you to help and you took the bait and you joined the fight. Therefore, what what do you expect as a nation? You expect what? Uh, You would expect victory, but you didn't get it and therefore you're expecting what? Revenge. David's now going to be out for your blood. You rebelled. You broke the contract. David conquered you. He had you under his hand and said, if you pay, you can bring blessing to us, you can bring tribute to us, and we will use this, and you are, everything's going to be at rest in peace. How dare you break the covenant? You're dead. They know that. And what's Aram and Zoba and Tov? What are they the gateway to again? Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia. And that's exactly what happens. Look at what they do. They gather themselves together, and Hadiazer sent and brought out the Arameans who were beyond the the river. What's the river? The river? Euphrates. Get together the entire Mesopotamian coalition. We are now in crisis level number two. Does that make sense? This is even a bigger crisis than original. Yes? So just like on the big picture, though, this is showing that the Davidic covenant isn't being fulfilled through David because he doesn't have rest in front of the enemy's anymore, right? Yeah, he broke that when he started to do all this proxy stuff. And you start to see it start to unwind but it gets worse. 
So, okay, here's David. And now you have an even bigger situation. It's not just these two nations. It's what? The entire region of Mesopotamia has now risen against you. And in this time, because that first time didn't do the job, who now does what? Look at verse 18-ish, 17. What happens? What happens? Now when it was told to David, what? He gathers all Israel. He does not what? Send. Remember, y'all were like, hey, but, you know, what is he else he going to do? He has to send. No, he doesn't. No, he doesn't. Well, you know, how, why is it David's fault that they ran into a trap? Well, what happened? Well, let's see what happens. When David gathers all Israel together and crossed the Jordan. The word cross here is in the singular. Why? Because it's emphasizing not that all Israel crossed, it's emphasizing who crossed? David. He was at the head of the army. Everyone's behind him. They're all one, surrounding and in solidarity with David. They cross and they fight. In verse 17, the Arameans, they array themselves. Plural. In order to meet who? In order to meet who? David. Not Israel. Who? David. Now, finally, David doesn't do any of this proxy business. He's on the field. And the Bible wants to make a very big deal about that. He's on the field. He's in the territory. He is the one who's in the battle now. And he's the one that Israel should be centralized around. And they fought against them? No, they fought against him. No accident. (coughs) But just so that you understand that David's not by himself, the Arameans flee before who? Israel. And who kills 740,000? David. Now, did David really kill that many people? Probably not. (coughs) It's probably what? The entire nation of Israel doing it but all the victory goes to who? Because he's where? There. He's on the field. Now think about this for a second. Let's make a series of contrasts. David gathers. Do they walk into a trap? No. Is there any problems with the battle? Is there any desperate, risky battle plan strategy? Is there... um, And here's a good contrast. There were 33,000 people. So were they up against a harder force? Yes, they even had what? Chariots this time around, yes? Totally harder force. And is there any sign of struggle? No. Is there a sign actually of what? Look at the remaining verses of total what? Victory. They kill the commander. They make peace with Israel. And they serve them. And they fear. What happens when Joab's in battle? They barely escape. They escape with a, with a victory, but a victory not great enough because what? There's another massive insurrection that occurs, one bigger than the last. Do you understand? What is the Bible saying? When David goes with his people, there is decisive, overwhelming conquest. When he doesn't, there is what? Near disaster. And the question you have to ask yourself is, why did he send? 
Why didn't he go? Why didn't he go? Why, did, why does he always stay behind when his troops were in battle? Why does he stay behind? And the next chapter tells you what? The reason. Because he was seeing who? Bathsheba. Did you follow that? Why is he sending? Why is he always staying at home? Because he does what pagan kings do. When you send the battle away, you play. <coughs> yeah. Uh, y- yes. Well, it's actually continuing to do it. In other words, chapter 10 is making you like, well, David, what are you doing? What are you doing? And then it's like, I'll tell you what you're doing. Let's look at the breaking point event of David's string of sins in chapter 10. Uh-huh. You're saying this, it's not like chronological, it happened, it was probably happening while it was going on? Or? No, ch- here's, here's what's going on. Here's my argument to you. Based upon narrative reading, here's chapter 11, right? On the timeline, here's chapter 10, yes? (coughs) Chapter 10, and all the battles are happening, and then you get to chapter 11. But what's happening during the battle chronology, what chapter 11 implies, chapter 11 is a real event that happens after chapter 10, but it implies a certain type of pattern that David was playing with while he sent his men away. Does that make sense? Chapter 11 is just the breaking point. Does this make sense to everybody? So in other words, is the situation exactly, David sends his men away, David sends his men away, he just stays behind and he doesn't do anything, or is it what? That he's spying on Bathsheba the entire time. And that's why he sends his what? Mighty men to the battle. But only when it gets really bad does he do what he knows would be right for Israel and what he does for his job. Do you see this? I think a lot of times we say, you know, David went on the roof and, oh no, like, whoa, she's there. I, I didn't expect her to be there. If you read the narrative closely, <coughs> you will see that David breaks down a lot of barriers he had set up to prevent him from going back on that rooftop. He knew she was there because he had known that from chapter 10. It's just that this time, certain things with his sin went quote unquote wrong. Does that make sense? He was bad in chapter 10 and he was bad way before that. This was a tremendous, tremendous sin. Do you understand what chapter 10 and 11, or chapter 10 is specifically doing now? It's not just like, well, like they got troubles and there's battles and you got a battle and no, 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 no. David, you should have been away from home during this time. You should have been out in the field. You should have been with the troops. Why aren't you with the troops? Why do you just keep sending the troops out? So that I can sleep with their wives. Question. Maybe, but the narrative focuses on one soldier's wife. 
Uriah's wife. <coughs> Hence the mention of mighty men explicitly getting sent out. Hence the mention of David sending and emphasizing why is he sending, why is he abdicating the post. All these things start to fit together in a plot. Uh-huh. So you think he's mostly just busting with his eyes before chapter 11? Maybe like these are the times he's sending, he's going up on his stuff and looking, but he's not... Maybe. Mm, maybe. Or maybe 11 is the time that he does it at the wrong time of the month and she gets pregnant. Because that's what the text emphasizes. Because she was washing herself from impurities. And so it indicates at that time of the month she was the most fertile. And he was just dumb. And he broke. Is it likely anybody else knew about this interaction in chapter 10? Yes. Of course. Who knew? You know who knew. Not Uriah. You know who knew. The text already told you. You just haven't put it all together yet because the text hasn't showed you the full hand. Joab. Joab. Joab knew. Do you notice that later on in the narrative, Joab and David never get along? Why? But it's implied he knew that in chapter 10. I think so. Here's why. Who is not mentioned in Joab's exhortation to be strong and courageous? The king. For the sake of the king. Where's the king? You should, I, I was surprised. No one asked me that. Where's the king? Joab doesn't want you to pay attention to the king. He hates the king right now. Because implied in the narrative, you don't know it yet. You should just be asking, does everyone understand? I've just given you the answer key to chapter 10. The goal of chapter 10 is to make you ask a bunch of what? Questions. What? What? Joab, don't you think the king, king, for King David, he's like the cool dude. We should like fight for this guy, right? Like, you know, you know, it's like in the battle with, uh, against the, you know, the, at the Black Gate for Frodo, you know? And it sounds so lame, but after, after everyone knows what Frodo's been to, it's like, yeah, let's, let's just die, you know, for Frodo. Where is for David? Does that make sense? Where is for David? Everyone would have been asking that. Where is the for David? This is about David. David was the one who was insulted. This is David's war. Where's the for David? Does that make sense to everybody? And, you know, there's no answer yet until you read chapter 11 and 12 and all the rest of the second Samuel, you think, oh my, he knew. Um, does the victory that David have imply that God was with him? <coughs> yeah. Even, even in spite of My loving kindness will not leave him. Even if you don't have good loving kindness, David, I do. I do. It's a whole play on terms. This is quite sinister. Does that make sense to everybody? Do you understand how dark this is? Um, this is very, very dark. Yes? So in chapter 11, it says they're at Ramah, I Yeah. Is that the same city that the Gates are mentioned in chapter 10? Yeah. All this is all happening? This is all in the same war. Right? And uh, you will see, and I'll let you out a little early today, but you will see next time when we meet. Because we have to do, I can't just start you on 12, 
right? And then say, oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> that would ruin the drama. Now you know all that's about to collapse. By the way, with David and Joab, remember what made David great? Remember the progression? He had a powerful military. Remember, he was the right person. And then he had a powerful military. And then he had national unification. Everyone remember this? What do you start to have? He's not the right person. So what starts to happen? Joab and David's relationship fall apart, which means that the military is what? Falling apart. And then what do you have? A series of coups. Everything starts to fall apart. Everything that God built up, David builds. David destroys. David tears down now. All right. Have a good day. You know, on that positive.